The past two years have been massively exciting in the Amazon FBA and e-commerce space because there has been so much money thrown around to buy businesses. Headlines have been ridiculous. Multiples have been ridiculous. And a lot of people, even though I know personally myself, have sold businesses that, I don't know, we might, might not have ever assumed we could sell. It's been an awesome couple of years. But the question we're going to ask today is, has that train started to slow down? It's going to be a great episode. Listen to the end and here we go. Hi, I'm Tim Jordan. And at every corner of the world, entrepreneurship is growing. So join me as I explore the stories of successes and failures. Listen in as I chat with the risk takers, the adventurous, and the entrepreneurial veterans. We all have a dream of living a life fulfilling our passions, and we want a business that doesn't make us punch a time clock, but instead runs around the clock in the AM and the PM. So get motivated, get inspired. You're listening to the AM PM podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the AMPM Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Jordan, and today we are talking about money. I know usually I say we talk about business. Today, we're specifically talking about money and big money in the Amazon and, I would say, broader e-commerce space. Now, when I first started selling on Amazon and other marketplaces, I remember everybody saying this isn't a business, right? It's not a business. There's no value in this. At any time, you can get suspended. I remember thinking, well, gosh, I'm building something. I don't know what it is, but I'm building something. And maybe the answer is to get onto a direct-to-consumer website, right? If I can get on a D2C site, a big commerce site, a Shopify site, then I would have an actual value for this e-commerce business once I got off Amazon. And everything started to change several years ago. There's a couple before then, but the majority of the landscape started changing just a couple, three years ago when aggregators started showing up in big way, bringing large amounts of money and buying up businesses. Now, I've talked about aggregators before, and give me just a second to preach here for a second. I'll, enter, I'll introduce our guest who is way smarter than I am. But you've heard me talk uh, before about how I didn't actually like when the first aggregators came on the market because they were telling people your business is worthless. We'll pay you something for it. And what I liked was maybe it wasn't that harsh, but it was close. Now, what I have appreciated is so many other aggregators have come to the space that it created this ridiculous competition and everybody had to start paying more. And in the past like 12 months, we've seen multiples for unbelievable numbers. I like unbelievable amounts. It's crazy how much people are paying for these businesses. And about 18 months ago, I started telling people it's going to come to a halt. It's going to stop. It's going to slow down. There has to be a balance because I'm looking at these product lists that some of these large well-known aggregators are selling and it's all crap. It's like no way in a million years would I try to sell the super saturated commoditized stuff that no one's ever going to build a brand on and it's going to be a dumpster fire. There's been a lot of headlines lately that were positive and we're starting to see some negative. And in this episode, we're going to ask the question, is the aggregator boom now a bust? So I have one of the smartest guys in the space that I know. His name is Joe Hogg from Global Wired Advisors. Welcome to the episode, Joe. Hey, Tim. It's great to be on. Now, I want to hear a little bit of background, Joe. Like, don't give us the whole life story, but talk about basically why you're an expert in this. And I'm going to let you explain it, and then I might also re-explain why I think that you're the right guy to have on. But you don't traditionally come from an e-commerce space, do you? No, no, I don't. My background is really capital markets, banking, investment banking. You know, I've have you know, traded derivatives, foreign exchange, you know, ran funding at large bulge bracket institution. So, so my experience is very different than e-commerce. It is, uh, it's really more market centric, you know, more, um, you know, more, I suppose, M&A capital markets um, heavy. Joe, I'll be honest, I don't know what half the words are that you just said. You said bulge bracket. I'm thinking about like a rusted out gate hinge or something. I have big, no idea what that, means. what that means. Big bang. All right. <laughs> yeah. But this is good. And this is why I want you on. And this is why I love hanging out with you guys over there, because you bring a different perspective to the space. Mm -hmm. I'm a blue collar firefighter. I don't know crap about nothing. Well, I shouldn't say that. I'm getting a little bit better. But 
the traditional and, and typical listener of this podcast, a smaller online seller, a solopreneur, they come from usually a different background. Most of them aren't coming from investment banking, but investment banking is now impacting our livelihoods. It's impacting our industry because investment bank is reaching down and, and investment banking is reaching down and touching this industry. So we need to be familiar with it. So when did you first become aware of this Amazon FBA business model from your banking background? Sure. So uh, I guess I should give you a little bit more context with respect to how we uh, started Global Wired Advisors. So we, we re- actually originally started in uh, in the lower middle market space, the small business space as Providium Advisors. And, you know, Providium Advisors was really just the brainchild of you know, four uh, actually, three investment bankers and you know, one CPG specialist to take a traditional middle market investment banking model down market into the lower middle market space, where we believed there was just you know a lack of expertise. You know, most most middle market investment banks really don't want to work with companies that are smaller. They just they prefer to work with companies that have enterprise values of 100 million or higher. And at the, at the low end, they're there are a lot of business brokers that can act as intermediaries, but just not really provide the same level of structured finance expertise. So that was the thesis of Preventing Advisors. And it turned out we got a lot of deal flow. There were a lot of smaller companies that really needed the expertise that we could bring down market. Well, after about a year or two of providing that to more traditional businesses, we noticed that just a lot of companies were coming to Tell us. Me time out. You said traditional businesses. Are you talking about brick and mortar businesses? Are you talking about service-based businesses? Uh, non-e-commerce, non-e-commerce, non-e-commerce. Okay. Got it. Yeah. So they were coming to us that you just, um, that needed, uh, you know, again, advisement with respect to, to deal-making. So, so the, the consumer focused, um, e-commerce deal flow we found that was coming to the Providium Advisors platform really needed to be handled differently. It needed to be separated out and, uh, it required a different level of focus. So, um, in, in doing that, we created Global Wired Advisors, basically. And Global Wired Advisors is focused entirely on the e-commerce um, consumer vertical. So you came from larger larger business support in the investment banking world. You The way you described it, you came down market into smaller businesses that were traditional businesses. And then you see this crazy world of e-commerce. What did your buddies in the, you know, the middle tier of banking think about this new vertical that you were getting to in these smaller imaginary e-commerce businesses? Well, I, I think that it was so new that people really didn't have an idea about what it was going to be. I think it was, it was really quite novel. I think that, you know, e-commerce was at the time, again, this is going back three years ago at the time was, you know, very fragmented. It was, you know, very um, say mom and pop like it had not really been professionalized. It was, you know, very, um, very entrepreneurial, you know. It was uh, it was very quite it was quite small, you know. So 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 pushing an investment banking model, a sell side model, down into into this environment at the time felt to many people like overkill. It honestly did. A lot of people were like, "Wow, I just I think that that the the expertise that you're bringing down market probably isn't needed." And then, of course, we know the history of the space quickly professionalized as, you know, a ton of money moved into the space via the aggregator uh, model. So I think, um, you know, again, we we were timely with respect to, you know, how we were viewing the market, how we were approaching the market. So it sounds like you got into the right time because you brought a professional background, professional knowledge and really professional team into, a, a I don't know, a business 
community that wasn't necessarily professional at the time that professional money showed up. Correct. Right? That's correct. And, right. And for those of you that are listening, we're about to get into some some cool stuff here, and we are going to ask that question if things are slowing down. But I want to share my opinion of the acquisition space, the main four players in the acquisition space. Now, everybody knows the term aggregators, and if not, I'll, I'll tell you. Everybody knows what a broker is. Not many people know what an investment bank is. When you look at the especially smaller e-commerce business acquisition lineup, I see four components. The first one's a broker. And I sometimes have used the term like brokers like Craigslist. They basically can take your business and they can show it to people, right? Might not be a whole lot of polishing, might not be a lot of other support there, but it's being advertised. Then you have your aggregators. And these are these large roll-up companies that take a lot of money in debt and equity. And they buy your business with the, un- with the intent of making it more operationally efficient, adding more money into it as an investment for advertising, whatever it is, and then creating a return on their investment, right? Because they're rolling up these businesses. And they're the ones that typically are trying to reach out to sellers and buy directly. Then I have what, you're, what I call your broker pluses. This is not an official term. This is what I call it. These are your brokers that may have some legalese. Right? They may have a little bit of experience. They may have um, a law firm embedded in them where they can do some, uh, I don't know, deals and documentation in a legal way. And then I have what I consider true investment banks. And I used to not know the difference. Global Wired I like because these guys are true investment bankers, but it's hard for them to be understood in this space because it's so unique. You know, the, some of the terms Joe used, like I still don't know what those means. Bolts bracket, why does that mean big bank? I don't know. But, but now I know, right? I'll, I'll tattoo that on my forearm. So... <laughs> In this space, we have these four components. The aggregators really put a big boost into basically the whole industry, right? People are getting excited. People are selling their businesses. There was a lot more investment in infrastructure and software and logistics from all these other industries because they said money's being pumped in to support these sellers, you know, and support these brands like we have to come in too. So it was a it was a fun time. There were some pretty crazy headlines in the past couple of years, right, Joe? Like, like explain what happened briefly in the past two years that just got everybody jacked up. It really, I believe, all started... Uh, at Prosper, actually, I, I think the the aggregator thesis began circulating amongst a few people at Prosper in either Is this 20, like 2019. Yeah, either twenty either 2018 or 2019, and okay. you know it was an entrepreneurial idea. It was you know basically pulling two or three related brands together, finding an economy of scale, finding brand synergy, generating cash flow, and basically repeating the model, right? Repeating the acquisition model and it was it was something that was really quite frankly from that those early entrepreneurial ideas pioneered into a legitimate business by Thras, and Thras was the first out of the gate to to successfully get a seed round done with this investment thesis, and to make acquisitions that in the early days worked well, and then to raise extraordinary sums of money to pursue um, the whole roll up strategy. And I think that in in the early days prior to the pandemic, the the model was thought of correctly. I, I think that the you know the the pioneers in the space were focused on cash flow. They weren't focused on generating revenue at all costs. They weren't focused on becoming a unicorn. They weren't heavily influenced yet by venture thinking, and it was really a it was really a disciplined roll up strategy where acquisition multiples were assumed to be reasonable and cash flow was. Uh, viewed as really kind of the, the necessary ingredient to, to make the whole thing work. And as we rolled forward into the pandemic, the the thesis was supercharged. The, the aggregator investment model 
just exploded because, of course, we we did something that we haven't done probably ever in the history of the world is we sent everyone home for a year. And we basically said, you need to live and work from home, <laughs> right? And yeah. well, people, and then we stuffed them with, with transfer payments, unemployment benefits, et cetera, and they went crazy on Amazon. And it supercharged the, again, it supercharged the entire investment thesis. And I think that there was a little bit of a disconnect. Well, there were a few disconnects, actually. The, the venture and an early investment money that, that flowed into the, the aggregator investment model flowed in with kind of, I hate to say it, but, you know, eyes wide shut to, to some extent. I think that the people that were pitching the model pitched it as, hey, look, we know Amazon. We know how to roll up brands in Amazon. We know how to basically operate the Amazon, be efficiently, uh, be efficient operators of the Amazon machine. You need to trust us. Keep funding us. We're killing it, right? We're, we're growing like crazy. We're making a ton of money. We're killing it. And I think to some extent, a lot of the early investment dollars that were flowing into the space really didn't understand Amazon. I think that they viewed Amazon still as somewhat of a black box. I think they they trusted the the operators that were executing brand roll-up strategies, and they weren't really deep into these business models, right? And there was no reason to be at the time while things were working so well. <laughs> the pandemic was, you know, was tremendous tailwind that was providing, you know, all of the validation that you needed that this was a great investment idea. And and that's when we saw the big headlines come in, right? That's when yeah. aggregators were raising hundreds of millions of dollars and like everybody was just going crazy, right? Yeah, they they were going crazy, right? And it was um it was something that quickly turned into a frenzy. It quickly turned into an investment frenzy that um, became validated through, you know, again, just, you know, performance with, you know, many aggregators rolling up companies successfully. And do you think that a lot of that frenzy was based on the growth of e-commerce sales that we were seeing? Or do you think the frenzy was also on the headlines? This person hit unicorn status. This happened. Like, we better get in on this too. Yeah, I think that the news cycle, of course, added fuel to the fire. But the model began to change when a, a lot of additional investment money began flowing in and the venture mindset entered the space because the the original model, as it was contemplated back in 2018 and 2019, was make acquisitions at prudent enterprise value levels and focus on cash flow. Ensure that you know whatever whatever your capital structure looks like, whatever your debt equity combination looks like, just make sure that you're generating enough cash flow to to continue the acquisition strategy to to basically have a buffer should you hit a bump in the road. Well, when when we saw this influx of predominantly venture money, the model shifted over to becoming more revenue focused, to acquiring top line growth at all cost, because the idea was that eventually an aggregator of scale was going to get over the, the wall with respect to going public with an IPO and was going to really validate the entire investment thesis. Uh, we would have a we would have an example of a publicly traded company, and we would have a multiple, probably off of revenue initially, but then uh, presumably EBITDA, that we could use to value the rest of the space. The space, in effect, would move from mark to model to actually mark to market. And in in that in that run up to this assumption that eventually someone was again going to get over the wall, was going to get public. You need to get as big as you could. You needed to acquire as many companies as you could. You needed to you know, roll up as many brands as you could to get as big of a scale as possible. And again, 
you know, you were you were hoping for you're hoping for this you know, this public securities transaction to validate the entire uh, investment theme. Let me make sure that I'm understanding kind of in layman's terms what you're saying. Basically, what you're saying is there are a lot of components that came together at the same time, whether it was an influx in sales, influx in money, this frenzy, the decision making of purchases and acquisitions and money spend not necessarily being based on profitability, but based on revenue Correct. to value these aggregators to try to raise more money. And eventually at least one of them gets IPO. So, you know, I love the old term. What is it? Revenue is vanity. Profit is sanity. Right. So it's almost like the KPI for success for a lot of these aggregators was just buying revenue and not necessarily buying quality or buying profitability. Right. So there's like five components that all blended together that caused this frenzy of artificial inflation of the market, artificial inflation of values or evaluations for the brands, for the aggregators themselves, even trickle down into the, the, the talent, the agencies, the logistics industry, like everything was artificially inflated, I believe. Is that a good assumption or a good assessment? It, it, it was. Again, really what I what I like to tell people is it's impossible to understand the last two and a half years exclusive of the pandemic effect. Again, it just can't be understated just how significant it was sending everyone home for, you know, for a year and and having them adjust their lives. And, you know, we've seen we've seen, quite frankly, structural changes in the economy that might be long lasting, that might stay with us for some time. So in understanding e-commerce and in understanding Amazon in particular, over the last two years, it has to be understood in the context of the pandemic, what the pandemic did to consumer spending and how those shifts basically impacted, again, this investment thesis, this aggregator investment thesis, and how it led to really the correction that we're in now, the correction insofar as the post-pandemic sales correction, the correction insofar as you know, how aggregators now are going to navigate capital structures that probably don't work, how we're going to have to, in effect, see a cleanup phase in the space just to clear the bad positions that are in the market that are in, you know, predominantly portfolio, predominantly aggregator portfolios. And I, I think that, again, when you sync everything back to the pandemic and you go, wow, this was this was a generational anomalous event. And we we saw tremendous investment flows associated with it into an investment theme. And now we basically have to unwind a significant portion of that. Then you kind of understand that there is going to be a little bit more pain. There's probably going to be additional fallout. There's probably going to be, you know, more bad news. We've talked about all of these components that compile to accelerate valuations and it work this market into a frenzy and there was an artificially induced inflation. Now you're talking about unwinding things. You're talking about things balancing and leveling back out and having that natural kind of like um, yin and yang thing going on. Mm -hmm. But what caused that? Were there components and elements of this industry that stimulated that slowing down? I don't know if that, does that make sense to say that stimulated the slowing down that, that increased um, the slowdown or was it just a natural balance to begin with? Well, you know, that's that's actually the right question. I, I think that, again, understanding what happened in the context of the pandemic, if we look at consumer spending patterns, obviously, when we sent everyone home, we stuffed them with transfer payments, they went nuts on Amazon, we created a shift in consumer spending away from services, which is actually two thirds of the US economy into goods, which is about a third of the US economy. 
And that's a tremendous amount of money that, because again, services were shut down, travel, leisure, going to restaurants, bars, NBA games, et cetera. Um, couldn't do that during the pandemic. So you reduced the spending ability of some sectors. You gave people more money. And now they can funnel all that into the only thing that they can do, which is buy crap and have it delivered to their front porch. Correct. That's correct. So again, that that supercharge, that supercharged online uh, purchasing, you know, by U.S. consumers, global consumers, and it also supercharged the aggregator investment thesis, and that was that you could successfully roll up brands, you could successfully grow brands and portfolio them, and kind of do that repeatedly. So, so I I, I think that when the pandemic began to wane and started turning over into an endemic type of um, status, that consumer spending began shifting back towards services. Consumer spending, uh, and there, there's, there are a few nuances in there. We haven't really seen services recover fully with respect to goods, but you know you have to throw no, in but Some of the services are well beyond what they ever were. I'm they trying are. to book flights right now, and I get on the phone with like my VIP concierge at American Airlines, and they're going insane because they're having the highest demand that they've had in 28 years. They are. 28 they years. Are. They Insanity. are. It is. And you know that's what you're saying is people have been cooped up for two years, right? So, so now they, they want to get back to spending money on services, and we're starting to see that. But we haven't really seen that trend fully normalize where we get back to – the, the ratio where we were insofar as services relative to goods. Oh, so it's not just going back to normal. It's actually rebounded to the negative. Well, you know, we're, we're, we haven't quite, we actually still have above trend spending on goods and below trend spending on services relative to where we were tracking in 2019 and before, before the pandemic. And can, can I ask, how do you know all this? Where do you get all this information? Are you just Wikipediaing this or like, well, who knows this Right. Well, it's just it's just macroeconomic stuff. We we follow it. You know, you should. It, it's in our actually. It's in our quarterly house view stuff. We actually have our quarterly house view that's coming out with uh, Prosper. We're going to be presenting a Prosper Remix, and we're going to roll out our quarterly house view. And uh, a lot of this is in there. And um, you know, I'll give you a tease for that. We're actually we're actually introducing something new there, which is going to be an index for tracking Amazon selling conditions. It's going to be uh, basically nine or 10 different components that will give you a feel for what Amazon selling conditions are through time. And I think that's really what's been missing in the community is a a map of sorts to... And that's what you're talking about right now. You're talking about how we probably should have seen this decline in product sales online coming, but no one one thought to look. No, they didn't. So, you know, when we when we when we roll the index out, it's going to be quite clear because it's going to draw a picture of where we've been and where we are now. And and then we're you're going to offer some advice on where we think the index is going to go. And of course, we're going to release it monthly so that we can we can track conditions, selling conditions, any data that's high frequency data that we can track where we're looking at how people are moving around. Most of that data is is showing that we're back close to, you know, call it 85 to 95 percent of where we were prior to the pandemic. So, so that's a good thing. However, again, going back to the good services split, I think what we're seeing is because of inflation, we're seeing a shift again in, in consumer spending where people are now um, moving from discretionary to staples. And that, I think, is keeping good spending a little bit elevated because everything costs more. And service spending is a little bit lower because people are still holding back. We're not back to 100% of where we were prior to the pandemic. And I think we're probably going to see more of that as inflation stays with us for a while. I, th- I think that, you know, it's something that 
you know, obviously the Fed is going to address here, you know, over the course of the, the year quite aggressively, we believe. But, you know, this um, the shift is, is confusing a, a number of people that we've spoken to because in looking at aggregate online sales, say for Amazon, you know, they were, you know, based on the last quarterly earnings report up like 4%. Well, people scratch their heads and they go, well, wow, my sales are not up 4%, 4%. You know, I'm, I'm significantly, you know, worse than that. I'm not tracking that at all. And, you know, for a lot of us in the community, we're focused on discretionary goods. We're mostly selling goods that are not consumer staples. We're selling widgets and home decor and, right. you know, accessories and like crap that we don't need. We're not selling toilet paper and oatmeal. Exactly. Exactly. That's ex- that's exactly right. So, so you know, I want to pause for a second and just make sure that, that we're staying, that everybody's following what we're talking about here. And all of you listening understand that we are on track, right? That the question that we're asking is, did this big boom that everybody got excited about, has it turned into a bust? And now what Joe's explaining to us is some things that are happening that are slowing down. I won't say slowing down the economy. I won't say necessarily slowing down sales. I won't say slowing down the industry, but things that are slowing down the excitement, maybe that the aggregators quote unquote success was riding on. Right. So what we got, less spending. And a lot of these aggregators, I know they sell tchotchke stuff. Like they sell stuff yeah. that's not a staple. So their sales are down because consumer behavior has adjusted. How right. big of an impact has the logistics situation been on aggregators performance as well? It's been significant because, you know, obviously the just tracking container prices, container prices are staying just ridiculously high. I mean, if we go back prior to the pandemic, you could move you know, a container from Shanghai to to LA for twenty five hundred bucks. You know, it got as high as fifty five, sixty grand. I think it's back now. You know, around forty five. You know, but it, it's it's still it's still very expensive, right? So so the shipping has been an enormous problem. The bottlenecks that we've seen through the supply chain um, have been yeah, and not just shipping costs, but actually getting your products. I mean, correct. I, I have a friend over at Reuters, and her entire job has been to follow the Long Beach port congestion for two years. Yeah, exactly. Um, someone sent me an image right now of the Shanghai port because Shanghai just went through a big lockdown for COVID. Yeah. And there's like 2000 ships anchored out outside of Shanghai, which is I think the second busiest port, maybe the third busiest port in mainland China. So even if pricing hadn't increased, people are just running out of stuff to sell. They are. And you know what's happening in Shanghai definitely bears watching because 20% of all the things that go in and out of China go through the port of Shanghai. So it's a tremendous manufacturing hub. And right now, China is insistent on maintaining what they refer to as a dynamic zero COVID strategy. And that is basically aggressive lockdowns, followed by testing, more aggressive lockdowns if needed. And China is the beginning of the supply chain. So if we are looking at uh, Shanghai going through a spike in COVID cases and China maintains a zero COVID strategy, we are going to see shortages of key components. There's no question about it. So much is manufactured in Shanghai and around Shanghai that it is going to create additional shortages. No question. And the reason this question about the aggregators is so important is because the success of the aggregators can somewhat represent the success or potential success of an online, especially marketplace seller. Because your Amazon, your Walmart, your eBay sellers that were selling their own products, they really started increasing their value. Like people became wealthy very quickly when the aggregators with this new roll up business model came on scene. 
So the success of the aggregators, although there's plenty of ways to sell your business, folks. I'm not saying the aggregators are the be-all, end-all. There's a million people to sell your business to, but they were like the flagship. They're the ones that came out and said, all right, everything's happening. And frankly, they were typically the easiest to exit your business to, right? Particularly if you had a product that (laughs) nobody should have bought anyways in some cases. So the reason that we're really, really curious, like really want to know if this aggregator thing is a boom or a bust is because it can significantly impact or determine the potential success of Amazon online private label brands, right? That's folks why we're asking this question. It can. And I, I think that it's easy. And again, not being a Debbie Downer, right, not saying no. that because a company didn't IPO, your company is an online seller's toast, right. but like it does take some wind out of the sails. It does. And, you know, again, it is, it's difficult to understand outside of the context of the pandemic. And what I always tell people is when you have an anomalous situation, and again, we're all to some extent guilty of extrapolating through an anomalous situation where you go, wow, sales are taking off. Wow, business valuations are taking off. Wow, this is fantastic. We're reaching you know, into kind of a, a new operating um, model where there's just going to be a, a ton more business that's done online. And it's really, no, it's really been more of an anomaly. And that extrapolation breaks down. Conversely, as we're going through the, the unwind of a lot of this overinvestment in the aggregator thesis, it's easy to extrapolate downward and say, oh, wow, it's going to impact you know, online sellers for years. Oh, wow, the aggregator investment idea is something that just didn't work. Oh, wow, you know, there are going to be so many losses and there's you know, going to be you know, so much hardship. And I, I, think, that's, I think that's wrong, too. I, I think that you know, there's probably going to be more bad news. I think that there's definitely uh, a need to clean up bad positions. Through okay, when you say that. When you say clean up bad positions, are you talking about aggregators that need to scrap their bad ASINs? Are you talking about investment funds that have invested in a lot of aggregators needing to clean up some of the bad aggregators? Yeah, I I think that it's a little bit of everything. So so most of the acquisitions that were executed in the space were executed with debt. So say of the 15 billion that was raised, probably 13 and a half billion of it was in the form of debt. The rest was in equity. Most of the equity we've come to learn was used to support aggregator GNA and the debt was used to basically pay for acquisitions. Well, yeah, so basically folks, what he's saying is the businesses that people bought were usually buying them on credit. They were borrowing right. money to buy the businesses. Correct. So whenever you are, whenever you're working with venture capital and they're funding acquisitions through debt, there there are going to be a lot of debt covenants that are associated with the debt that's provided. And those debt covenants govern to a large extent how you're going to operate your portfolio. And a lot of debt covenants are going to have liquidity provisions in them that basically say, okay, well, you know, you have to be cash flowing this much or have this much in adjusted EBITDA or SDE for us to be comfortable with respect to the existing debt we've provided, and especially comfortable if we're going to provide additional debt. So when we start breaching those covenants, we start running into to issues from debt providers where they are going to be inclined to offer suggestions to management about how to improve operating results to ensure that their position as debt holders are not um, imperiled. Well, that works for only so long before I think you run into a situation where there really 
isn't a lot you can do. Now, what a lot of debt providers in the space are doing is they're strongly suggesting consolidation. They're saying, hey, you guys should merge with you guys, vice versa. Um, but when you have a management team and equity that's basically still in place in an aggregator, it's 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 difficult really to, to force those types of combinations. So I think what we're probably going to get to is a point where where debt is going to be forced to probably execute debt to equity swaps where they they blow out a lot of the existing equity and aggregators. They basically assume that equity position. I think there are going to be a number of write-offs that are going to have to be taken with respect to debt that has been provided. But then you're you're left with, again, kind of going back to the bad position comment, you're left with fewer bad positions, basically. You're not over-levered. And Joe. You're making this sound so gentle. You're talking about write-offs and you're talking about debt to equity swaps. You're talking about the VC funds coming and saying, hey, bro, you owe me money. You can't pay it. I'm either going to hostily take your business or we're going to write you off and you're done. So a lot of, I won't make a, a speculation on, you know, the the aggregators that'll survive this, or the aggregators will be rolled up. But like a lot of the products and the brands that I think that friends of mine sold to aggregators are going to disappear. Like they're just going to be washed out. Yeah, a number, a number will. I, I think that there are going to be a number of brands that are just going to be allowed to attrite. I think there are going to be some circumstances where brands can be effectively sold out of aggregator platforms. But, you know, for the for the most part, the way this is resolved is, you know, the way most overlevered debt crises are generally resolved, and that's blowing out existing equity holders to some extent, mostly a large extent, bringing in new equity, writing off bad debt, and basically providing fresh management, fresh capital, and and clearing the deck, so to speak. And I think that- Joe, this sounds like a bust. So well, in the question, is the aggregator boom turning into a bust? This sounds like ominous to me, right? right? Like you're the guy with the data. You're the guy that understands this world better than any of us listening to probably. Like to me, this seems scary. So would it be, and I know you're not going to shake your crystal ball and make a, a blanket statement, but- would it be safe to say that the big boom, the excitement, the amazingly cool headlines that we've experienced for the past 36 months are probably going to disappear for a while and the headlines will probably be consumed by not so good news? Is that safe? I think that's safe. I, I, I think that, but again, it's it's something that you don't want to over extrapolate. And, you know, exactly. it's, it's, it's something where, you know, again, it's easy to say, well, the tide has definitely changed. Things could be getting, you know, a lot rockier over the course of the next quarter or two. It feels bad. It feels terrible. Oh my gosh. Right. No, I, I think that it, it all comes down to your perspective and timing, right? So if, if you are in the space and you're basically looking at, doing things in the space over the next quarter or two, well, over the next quarter or two, it might be, it might be rough. But if you're looking at being a longer term player in the space over the course of the next year, two, three and onward, then it's going to be great. It's going to be great because once we go through, again, what I would probably would like to refer to as a little bit of a cleanup phase insofar as the aggregator investment. That's such a diplomatically correct. (laughs) (laughs) We're, we're going to be in a position to grow again. And I, I think that there's going to be no shortage, absolutely no shortage of investment dollars that are going to flow into funding acquisitions that are in um, directly involved in, in Amazon. I, I think that 
it is, uh, it's something that isn't going to go away. I think it is something that is absolutely 100% here to stay. I think that um, a lot of people got carried away with respect to the pandemic effect, and it's supercharging the original aggregator investment thesis. We're going to, again, have to clean that up. And I think once we do, um, it's going to be Ford Ho. I, I think that there is long-term really going to be no loss of momentum. I think that you're going to have a lot more investment dollars flow into the space. I think that you're going to have traditional PE that is not necessarily early stage or venture get a lot more involved in the space. We're already kind of seeing that you know, on the fringe. I think that you're going to see more of that. I think that we, we, we've really... We've really taken an investment idea. We've ridden it to to a top, which was an anomalous top based on a once in a lifetime event, the pandemic, and we got carried away. Now we need to we need to unwind a, a lot of the you know a lot of the the leverage that was applied to um, acquiring brands that just were not going to cash flow, and we will. I, I think that just like every other, just like every other you know over levered investment idea that we've worked through in the past through any number of asset classes, we're going to do the same here. And I think when we get to the other side of it, it's, it's going to, we're going to go right back to growing. E-commerce grows about 15% a year. I, I think that we're going to get right back on trend, you know, in, you know, probably two or three quarters, we'll be right back on trend. And I think the operating environment will be stable again. We will have gone through this phase of, we've learned a lot. We will learn a lot. Everybody. Cleaning up so, that, right. I, I think that the the reason this question is important, Joe, and like the reason I really wanted you to have to have you on to talk about this is because you know there are rumors about massive aggregators making massive layoffs. I know senior leadership at aggregators that are calling me and saying, like, this is this week, like, hey Tim, I, I need a job. Mm -hmm. Holy crap! Like this is bad. We know that the venture capital funds are squeezing pressure. We know that people aren't getting payouts, and it's scary because we saw this crazy, awesome thing happen. We're like, we're all going along for a ride. This e-commerce business thing is legit. We're all going to get rich. This is going to be amazing. And now it's like, oh my gosh, someone has knocked a hole in our boat. And that's what I wanted to get to the question of: is like, am I crazy in assuming that that this thing is slowing down significantly, and that the rumors are not necessarily rumors; they are truths. And like, we are going to have to face a tough time, which sounds like you are. So. I think that if we had to answer the question, from what I'm understanding, is the aggregator boom a bust? Maybe the aggregator boom is a bust, but the acquisition and investment boom in small to medium-sized businesses and e-commerce is just getting started. That's Is that a safe assessment? Characterized perfectly. Characterized yes. perfectly. Yes. I don't normally get something right, especially <laughs> talking about something complex. And folks, this is why it's important because you know every, every big thing in life you know, has to have a balance. Every big wave has a big trough behind it. And we, I think, as e-commerce sellers and entrepreneurs and solo hustlers are so wrapped up in what we do every day and every single dollar counts and every single success and failure hits us with the highest highs and the lowest lows. And we need to recognize that this is a long-term play. This is chess, not checkers. And we don't need to freak out. We don't need to panic. We don't need to just completely lose our marbles over the next two or three months when we see these headlines and these, as Joe likes to call, the cleanups happening as big, well-known brands and companies take a big dump. Like, I really think that's going to happen. If we can live through that and if we could survive through that, basically what Joe, the smart guy, is saying is like, it's not over. This is just a small dip. But what's going to be cool about it, and I had never thought about this, Joe, until you said this, a lot of our really aggressive competition is going to disappear. Not just products, but the biggest spenders of very aggressive overpriced PPC right now may not be around too much longer, That's right? Cool. Like yeah. the guys that were that were occupying all of that organic search result page with a bunch of bull crap <laughs> junk, 
that may have sold to big aggregators and now they've wiped that off the slate. Like we that are doing things the right way and 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 actually building legitimate brands and building legitimate legitimate sales channels, like it may get actually really good for us. It may. And, uh, you know, with respect to PPC, my, my hope is that if we are going to have to go through this cleanup phase, hopefully, you know, PPC goes down some. That that would be my hope. I, I'm not yeah. I'm not convinced of that yet, though, because you know I, I think that aggregators, believe it or not, are still such a small sliver of overall Amazon-based business ownership. Believe it or not. So when you just look at yeah. your total GMV owned, they just they still don't own enough. Which again gives me hope that there's a lot further to go for the investment thesis once we normalize the economy, once we basically consolidate and clean up the space. I think there's a lot more to do. But with respect to PPC, um, I, I think PPC is just a result of more people getting involved with Amazon. I, I think the space is professionalizing outside of what aggregators are doing as well. So that's maybe so a you're telling me not to get too excited. You're telling me to, yeah. to hold on. Things are going to get good, but don't like don't yeah. get too jacked up because the, that swing is actually not as a big of a swing in the overall community and the overall environment as it is specifically related to like the Amazon FBA roll-up aggregator community. Correct. Correct. That's so, what I, I know we're running out of time. This is one of the longest episodes we've recorded in a while and I could keep talking to you for six more hours, but I know that all the listeners on Spotify and iTunes are going to get all hacked off for, for making us go too long here. But I know that like the reason I have you on, the reason I had your one of your business partners, Chris Schiffling, on I think close to two years ago or a year and a half ago, is because you guys don't just pull stuff out of your butts and make it up. You actually do a lot of research, and you guys have written some of the best white papers and some of the best articles I've ever seen in this industry. They're mind blowing. If anybody listening wants to go and completely nerd out reading these industry reports and these industry predictions and things like that, GlobalWiredAdvisors.com is that right, Joe? Correct. GlobalWiredAdvisors.com. Um, definitely pick those up. If you ever come to a conference and you've walked around and uh, run into some dudes from Carolina in blue jeans and tennis shoes and a polo shirt that don't look like what you would imagine like higher tier investment bankers looking like, like you may run into these guys. Hmm. And Joe, that's one thing I love about you guys is is you saw us little people down in the e-commerce space and you bring your experience, but you guys know, you actually know Amazon. Like you guys actually have your own Amazon products that you launch now. Like, that's do. pretty amazing. Yeah, we do. Yeah. So we're, we're always looking for investment ideas and, you know, trying to build businesses and trying to build brands in the space as well. You know, so it's, you know, it is, so, um, so you get it, you understand yeah, we, get it. we get it. And, you know, I'd like to leave you with one, one thought, you know, there through the aggregator investment boom, there has been really, I would say super increased awareness of what people's businesses are worth. That's, that's, that was one consequence of, again, the aggregator phenomenon is everyone was focused on where they thought their business could trade, what they thought an appropriate multiple for their business was. And that was kind of concurrent with the entire phenomenon. Well, what I would say is now, um, really the thing to do is to focus on your business, to focus on building your brand, to focus on being a successful seller on Amazon. The, the aggregator takeout or the takeout or the buyout of your company by anyone is, is not something that should be value, validating the value of your business. It is there to serve you. The aggregator bid for your company or any bid for your company is there to serve you, right? Your company is what you make of it every day. And what I would say is focus on building your company. Don't focus on what you think a multiple is going to be in a quarter or two or where it was, you know, a year ago compared to where it is, you know, today, 
that multiple, that takeout offer is going to always be moving around. Again, it is there to serve you. It is not there to validate what you're doing as a seller on Amazon. So, so I would encourage people to, to again, focus on their, focus on their companies, focus on their brands and focus on doing what they know and not on basically where aggregators are, what's happening in the aggregator space, where the multiple for your company is. I think that that is something that can be focused on in time. Amen. I love it. Folks, you know that we don't do sales pitches on this show and uh, Joe hasn't given one, but I'm going to give it for him. Check out globalwiredadvisors.com. Check out their data. Check out their information. I think it's the best in the industry, uh, at least from what I've seen. And I haven't really looked that much. No, I'm kidding, Joe. <laughs> Actually, I've looked. But thank you all for being on. Um, if any of you listening have any questions or comments, post them in the reviews on whatever podcast platform you're listening on or in the comments section if you're watching this on YouTube. And what a great episode. I don't really know what else to say, but Joe, thanks for being on. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you all on next week's episode.